0: She's the author of Negotiations, Breakthroughs, and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today?
1: Well, today our show is about effective decision making. And when you're trying to resolve a dispute, you have to really have effective decision-making so that you can make decisions that are going to be appropriate for you and everybody else. And if they're not effective for you, then the thing is going to fall apart. The agreement will just fall apart. And we have a wonderful guest with us, and I have this great book in front of me. It's called Beyond Right and Wrong, The Power of Effective Decision-Making for Attorneys and Clients by Randy Kaiser. And I I must tell you that even though it is, he was looking at the issue of attorneys and clients, I think that this book is really good for anyone who has to make decision-makings. And I especially love, like in the back, he has sample questions to probe for decision-making skills. And I truthfully think that anybody that would look at these questions that we can talk about later, they can see if they're making, um, if they have good decision-making skills. Effective decision-making skills, and very, very uh, insightful questions. So let me tell you a little bit about Randall Kaiser, and we're going to call him Randy. Uh, he is the principal analyst in Decision Set, which is a decision ser- It's a decision services and professional development company. His research regarding attorney-client decision making integrates the fields of law, economics, statistics, and psychology, but really it does apply to anyone who is trying to make good decisions in negotiations. So Randy is the author of two books, Beyond Right and Wrong, The Power of Effective Decision Making for Attorneys and Clients, and that was out in just 2010, and How Leading Lawyers Think, Expert Insights into Judgment and Advocacy, and that's in 2011. He also is the lead author of the widely read article, Let's Not Make a Deal, an Empirical Study of Decision Making in Unsuccessful Negotiations. And this was in the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies in 2008. Randy's research has been featured in popular trade and popular um, magazines and articles across the country. And this would include the American Bar Association Journal, the Dispute Resolution Magazine, both of those I get, the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, National Law Journal, Daily Journal, the in-house defense quarterly Bar Association publications and many different states. So even though we are talking uh, about lawyers, I really believe this, you know, these same skills apply to any one of us who's trying to make decisions when we're trying to resolve conflict. Uh, Also, I think it's really important to know that Mr. Kaiser has presented programs for diverse organizations, such as the American Bar Association, such as Master Mediator Institute, the University of Pennsylvania, Vanderbilt University, and the University of California. You can find out a lot more about him at DecisionSet.com and also at conflicthealing.com, where we have his picture, his bio, we link to his URL, and of course this interview is there as well. So without further ado, I'm just going to welcome you, Randy. Thank you so much for joining us from beautiful Palo Alto.
0: And thank you very much for the invitation to speak with you. It's quite a privilege.
1: So tell us, well thank you, tell us about your research and, and how it focused. I've spent
0: 20 years as a litigation attorney and then an additional 10 years trying to understand the dynamics and the statistics behind legal decision making. A lot of our work is quantitative, based on extensive databases that we use to further our understanding of how attorneys and clients make decisions under uncertainty and risk. And then quite a bit of the work deals with the qualitative factors in decision making. We've tried to understand legal decision-making, and as you point out, most of this is applicable to any type of decision-making under risk and uncertainty in at least four dimensions, the psychological, the legal, the statistical, and the personal. Many people tend to emphasize one aspect or another that is quantitative or qualitative, and since legal decision-making in particular is a very nuanced and complex type of decision making, as you know very well. We try to balance uh, both perspectives.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what you learned about the psychological, because people try and forget, they say, oh, this is all legal, or like you said, the, the four components, which I think are, are very, very important. And so many of us make decisions. When there is risk involved, right? Whether should I buy this franchise? You know, should I go into business with this person? Um, should I resolve? You know, should I should I agree to this settlement? Is this a good settlement for me? Could I do better in court? I mean, those are aside from legal things. You know, it's a lot of emotional stuff. Like you think, well, do I really? Can I, can I put up with this lawsuit anymore? Do I have the money to do this anymore? I mean, there's so much that's involved in any kind of decision-making. So why don't we talk a little bit about what you learned about the psychological attrib- attributes?
0: Well, one thing we looked at is whether behavioral economics theories, uh, also known as framing theories, apply to legal decision-making. Uh, There's a lot of research in this field, and Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his research in this field. And one of the major conclusions from the behavioral economics field is that how you frame a decision, whether as a loss or a gain, has tremendous effect on what decision you will make. Generally, people are risk-averse or risk-avoidant when facing gains, and risk-taking when facing losses. And this has been demonstrated in a variety of fields, including how we handle our own stock portfolio. Uh, We have a tendency to sell our winners and hold on to our losers because we simply cannot accept the reality of a loss. So, we do engage in certain irrational behaviors as a result of what they're called framing biases. Mm. On top of that, there are nearly 100 heuristics, biases, and delusions, many of which I discuss in the book, that work in many circumstances and have proven to be adaptive, but surprisingly, are very injurious to effective decision-making in the legal context.
1: You know, I, what struck me when I was reading your book is I was thinking about these clients that I had many years ago. This is when I was still litigating, and they came to me, an elderly couple, and they had been swindled, right? Mm-hmm. And they uh, had been swindled badly, and they, I, I was like the fifth attorney that they were coming to. Other ones took their money, and they didn't get their money back. And they came to me and they said, you know, we're willing to spend our last dime to get that money back. And I said to them, I looked at them, they were like 70 something years old. And I said to them, I said, would you rather be right or happy? <laughs> and, and, you know, I said, so what is this doing to you? What is this whole lawsuit, these series of lawsuits, this guy was, you know, evading and, and bankruptcy and, you know, it was just ridiculous And I said, so, you know, you're not going to get them. Well, we'll find something. We'll find some way. We just, it's the principle of the thing. He took all of our our nest egg. And I said to them, you know, so why are you thinking like this? I mean, how is it affecting you? Oh, we're both so sick from this. We're stressed out. My husband, he had a heart attack. And And I went through all these things with them. And I said, so, so help me understand, given all the stress, given all the aggravation, given all the losses... Isn't it time to let go and and um, and they said no we're, we're gonna go find somebody who'll take the case I said the greatest gift that I can give to you as a lawyer is to tell you to let go focus on something else keep the nest egg that you have left and just move on with your life and um, and they they couldn't do it
0: well Mari that case illustrates the fact that you're in the vanguard of attorneys who take a much broader perspective in solving clients' problems. You're looking at both the emotional and the legal aspects. Unfortunately, in law school, and then for most of our career, we tend to emphasize technical expertise. And when we talk about somebody being a good attorney, often that means that they're a specialist in a field. That is, they have subject matter expertise. We often overlook the immense emotional effect that lawsuits have, and we tend to be somewhat, uh, I don't know what's the best word for it, but we we, we tend to minimize the emotional effect that clients and cases have on us as attorneys. Sometimes we're not even aware of how we're responding emotionally, Mm -hmm. and I think that can be very important even in the settlement context to recognize that we as attorneys may be a bit risk averse and that we have our own reservations about going to trial that reflect our personal insecurities sometimes, our our concern about uh, having an adverse outcome at trial. That may cloud our judgment in terms of deciding whether that case uh, should be settled. So I think what everyone in the forefront of legal decision-making is trying to do is to introduce the concept that we need to spend more time paying attention to the emotional components and aspects of decision-making.
1: You know, and that's so true. And Randy, you know, when I was thinking, it's it's not just the emotional, it's, it's really even the physical, because people get sick when they're under stress. You know, I've had a lot of clients that have come to me who've really been Getting, got physically ill from all of the stress that they went through in a lawsuit, and that's why they said, "I can't take it anymore. I want to mediate this. You know, I just got to get it out of the court system. I can't take it. I'm, I'm having trouble breathing. I, you know, it, it isn't worth it to me. I'm gonna die before my partner gets all this money. You know, it's, uh, or before I get all the money. It's just." So you know, I tell people, oh, okay, I'm a holistic attorney, and they go, "Well, is that an oxymoron or what?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> but when when I think about how we should be teaching in law schools, and I, and I've taught in law school is, look, and and I've taught negotiation and mediation in law schools, and I say, okay, so so when we look at the whole picture, we look at the whole picture of our clients and ask them questions not only about what is it that happened to you and looking backwards, but what do you want now? And, and and what are the factors in your life that are affecting that? And, you know, how do you really feel about this? You know, is it, is it because you're angry and you would rather be right than happy, like I talk to my other clients? Or is it because you feel you have to get revenge? Or is it the principle of the thing? Sometimes people stand on principle And then they lose. And then, you know, so where did they, where did they get? What do you really want out of this? Do you want peace of mind? Do you want to move on with your life? Do you want to make money in your business? I mean, if you spend all this money on this lawsuit, you know, and it takes you away from your daily business because you're in depositions, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, am I? Are people, when you did your research, were you finding that attorneys are starting to talk like that, or is it just me that now as a mediator, I I use these kinds of tools to talk to people realistically?
0: Those are all tough, penetrating, very difficult questions. And many of those questions are not asked, or to the extent they're asked, are simply not uh, considered and adequately weighted uh, by the attorneys and the clients we have a tendency to believe that we are more objective in evaluating the merits of our cases than we really are.
1: Mm. So, so tell me then, um, why is litigation decision-making difficult for attorneys? I mean, you would think they're smart people. They went to school, they know the law. So why is it so difficult for them?
0: There are three major problems. First, unlike other professions,
1: we don't have the
0: type of databases that give us reliable information on outcomes. Hospitals and physicians do a pretty good job of keeping track of morbidity and mortality rates, but we don't have that type of data, and therefore we lack the data that would facilitate making more objective decisions about the likelihood of prevailing in cases. Secondly, attorneys are not taught how to be effective decision-makers. There are very few law schools that either highlight decision-making biases, illusions, and heuristics, or teach us how to overcome them. The third major impediment, I think, is that we lack incentives to become decision-makers, to become more effective decision-makers, And by that, I mean that in legal cases, it is so difficult to allocate responsibility. When we have adverse outcomes, there are usually a multitude of reasons we can point to. And that broad landscape upon which we can allocate responsibility prevents us from recognizing when we as attorneys have been ineffective decision-makers or counselors. It seems that there's always somebody else or something else we can blame, and in any field where you don't have direct responsibility for outcomes, it's very difficult to improve decision-making.
1: You know, but everybody's agreement, their retainer agreement, says you know, we cannot promise an outcome.
0: <laughs> That's <know>? absolutely
1: right. <laughs> even mine, even my mediation agreement it says, I will do everything that I can to facilitate negotiations so that you come out with a, with a good result that you can live with both sides, you know. And I thank God over the years, since I've been doing it for 26 years, I, you know, Most of the time we get everything resolved and I feel good about it, but, you know, I can't promise that because it's beyond my control. I'm not in control of what the decisions are that my clients are going to make.
0: And that makes perfect sense to have that type of provision, but it can also facilitate our not taking responsibility for decisions and counseling that definitely could have been better in retrospect. I think that in law... When we have an adverse outcome, we can blame a judge, we can blame the jury, we can blame some conduct on the part of other attorneys. And although this may be accurate, it certainly doesn't impose a responsibility upon us to improve the part that we do have control over.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Sometimes these are called outcome-irrelevant Environments and when you have an outcome irrelevant environment, that means that it's difficult to pinpoint responsibility on someone, and those are very poor learning environments for decision makers.
1: Right. I'll tell you, I think with the advent of, of big databases and the internet and listservs, when you were talking before about we don't have anything like doctors do to show morbidity rates, um, I think we. Now with PACER, which, you know, that collects, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the the judicial decisions, et cetera, um, we have more of that available to us. I know, like, I'm on several listservs, so I will ask questions about a particular issue. What, you know, what do you all know about this issue? How, Given these set of facts, what do you think would happen? So that's one thing that I do. Um, Another thing I know is like if you you look at jury verdicts on certain things, you can you can actually buy certain things from from companies that have jury verdicts to let us know like what you know, what kind of cases, for example, something that has come up recently is, you know, um, victims of security breaches. How many cases are there in which a judge will find that a person who is a victim of a security breach without any identity theft? would um would recover for emotional distress. All right. So then you can at least go back to your client and say, look, this is what I'm finding that, you know, even though you were really messed up and it was really, you know, you haven't slept and all these horrible things have happened, here's what the jury verdicts are. So what do you want to do about this? You know, so at least there are more there is more of that with the advent of the internet and all the information that's available. But um Isn't there some time, and this is what I've seen as the meteor, sometimes when there's a really wealthy client, and I hate to say this, but sometimes when there's a really wealthy client, there is no incentive to settle.
0: That can be a factor, but then the other extreme can also be a factor if the client is being represented purely on a contingency basis and has the other extreme where their personal money is not at risk for the attorney's fee. It can also introduce some anomalies into the decision-making process because I think what you're pointing out is the effect of either having a disproportionate amount of money to spend or the other possibility is that a party does not have that much money to spend, but it may not matter because it's not their money. For similar reasons, a party that's contemplating bankruptcy, if they don't prevail in the action, also has certain decision-making anomalies that other parties may not have. They may be much more risk-taking because, in their mind, it's all upside. Either they're going to do very well and settle that case for what may seem to everybody else as an unreasonable amount, or that they're simply going to go into bankruptcy and wash out the entire transactions. And I right, think,
1: so the risk of loss is nothing. We get, they just figure, okay, so my credit will be bad for 10 years or something, but uh, so what? So what? Yeah. at least it's no money out of my pocket. Everybody's go, got this is a bad economy. Who cares? Yeah. And
0: these, may, I think, make it very difficult for mediators to settle cases. And if I can go back to your point about the data, because I think it's a very, very important point, we are now beginning to develop and have access to much more data. And I think that 10 years from now, anyone listening to to this conversation would think that that was a rather peculiar point in time where we were just beginning to collect, analyze, and have access to serious data about case outcomes. I foresee a time when law firms there will be data on law firms indicating whether that law firm has an unusually high number of adverse outcomes in a particular type of case. And I define an adverse outcome as doing worse at trial than you would have done simply by accepting an adversary's settlement offer or demand.
1: Right. And we're even seeing with mediation groups um, that, For example, and I don't want to say a particular name of a a very famous uh, mediation, commercial mediation service, but they're known for, you know, if they're arbitrators, they have arbitrators and mediators, they're known for really more being defense-oriented because the big companies will come back to them. And so there's an incentive to be more defense-oriented because that's their bread and butter, which is a a skewed way of looking at it. I know many times I have been a mediator on cases with an insurance company, and the insurance company uh, attorney would tell me straight up, there's no way we're going to settle today. We're only here because the judge told us to be here. But we, even though this person really deserves to get some money, we're going to just string it out, string it out, until we have to almost pay nothing. And if we have to go to court and we lose, so we lose. And I have heard that. From the attorney, for the insurance company, so those kind of uh, you know factors really affect the decision making process, which is just not anything to do with the actual dispute itself. It's as to do with how that company is going to be perceived for future actions.
0: And it certainly would be helpful to have reliable data for that ADR provider or that insurance company. So that we can start to determine whether patterns we perceive at a at an intuitive level are actually borne out at a statistical level.
1: Yes, now, you you talked about some myths in your book, and you also you take a look at what you call the myths about who's an expert decision maker and what makes someone an expert. Let's let's talk about that. What does because we we don't have a whole lot of time. We have about another five minutes, and I just want to talk because I think it's so important for people who are listening to know what are the things, what are some of the attributes that do make a good decision maker.
0: Well, let's first deal with the myths. Okay. Uh, there are three myths, and that's that intelligence, intelligence, experience, and education are strongly correlated with superior decision making skills, and we find that decision-making is a distinct skill and is only weakly correlated with those factors. And I deal with the myths first because I think they impede our knowledge and development as decision-makers. What we need to recognize is that just because someone went to a great school, has a PhD, or has a high IQ, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good decision-maker. Decision makers are like proficient experts in every other field in that they obtain their wisdom the hard way through an inordinate amount of practice, time, and most importantly, keeping track of the results of their decisions, objectively measuring them, applying very high standards for future performance, and just being ruthlessly objective in evaluating their own performance, much like a a professional athlete would be where you perform, you record it, you get input from other people to see what they think of your performance, and then you resolve and force yourself to continue to do better. And in that sense, a master pianist is not that different from a master decision-maker and problem Solver,
1: and that you know I love that because I teach negotiations here at the campus at on UCI, and every semester, every single week, I give them they have a role play, and they role play it, and then they give each other feedback, and then the very last class they they do a role play that is a real live negotiation that either they've had and screwed up or that that's coming up and they have to record it on a DVD. And then the entire class gives them feedback about what works and what didn't work and what they might do differently. So that's exactly what we do in my class. So that's, that is uh, reassuring to me that we're at least doing the right thing to help these people make good negotiations and good decisions. And we're, believe it or not, we are out of time. I just want to tell everybody to read Randy Kaiser's book, Beyond Right and Wrong, The Power of Effective Decision-Making for Attorneys and Clients. And I got to tell you, I think this really applies to anyone who has to make decisions. And Randy, don't we all make decisions?
0: Yes. And I have a big (laughs) smile on my face from what you said about your class.
1: (laughs) And we will have to have you back again about your other new book. All right. So I'd be delighted. Keep in touch. And we are speaking with Randy Kaiser, the the author of Beyond Right and Wrong, The Power of Effective Decision Making for Attorneys and Clients. And just give your website for us, and then we got to go.
0: www.decisionasset.com.
1: And we will have you back again for, to talk about your newest book, too. So thank you so much, and we will see you. Have a great day. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 830 for prescriptions for healing conflict and visit our website at conflicthealing.com where you can see our guests, listen to archived interviews, download podcasts, and find out more about how you can heal conflict in your own life. Thanks. It's about trust. Yeah, yeah. It's about faith. It's about trust.
0: expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.